So once again, we are uh, here for the Gould Lectures on Holiness. And uh, once again, ENC has been doing this for 70 years. Now, Dr. Philip Fountain uh, proposed some very important questions for us last time about social identity, how identity is formed, and what this means in light of Christian identity. And he showed us a picture. I don't know if you all remember this picture that he showed us. And I don't know if you all know that this is Dr. Phil of Fountain. Okay, I don't know if you realize that. And he asked us this question. He said, what is it? What is it that allows for this to happen? What is it that allows for this kind of identity to take place? And it's a good question. What allows a uh, renowned theologian at this school to look like this? What is it? And I thought long and hard about this. And I uh, put a lot of theological reflection into this. And I've concluded that what allows for this is tenure. It's tenure. (laughs) Tenure makes space for this. Only tenure. I'm just kidding. Maybe not. I don't know. But uh, we do want to welcome again Dr. Phil LaFountain. And uh, give him your welcome. (laughs) Makes me want to preach. Wow. To proclaim the good news. Those songs were fantastic, folks. You did a great job. I'll Fly Away makes me want to get going, right, you know? And just the thought of the possibility of being a friend of God, I'll tell you, folks, that makes me want to be a better Christian. So thank you for that beautiful worship opportunity. And uh, so we live into that, right? We're called to live into that. I'm going to cry in a few minutes, sorry. Um, Yeah, that's what I do. But uh, good stuff. I mean, that's great. That's why we're here, right? Uh, so, yeah, that, that was a previous identity, right, uh, there on the bike. Uh, maybe that, maybe the, the social cause is tenure. Who knows uh, what that is. But uh, on Wednesday, I uh, hopefully tried to provoke some thinking about social identity, self-identity, and what that might look like, and under what conditions does a self-identity emerge Uh, But mostly we focused on the social structural hindrances to the establishment of consistent and durable and persistent identity, self-identities. And I hinted at the possibility that maybe these aren't as destructive or these aren't the great hurdles that some have suggested that they might be for us. And I know that's I have to offer a defense of that. Uh, Sure, uh, but we're going to work on that premise today, right? That it is possible for us to shape and form, uh, however intentional it has to be, shape and form durable and consistent and persistent and pervasive self-identities. And I argued yesterday at the symposium that religious identity, What it means to be spiritual or Christian or religious is a feature or aspect of self-identity. And I talked a little bit about salience, and I'll talk about that in a few moments. So we've got social hindrances, and we challenged that. And then yesterday we offered a theory. Uh, Many people assume, well, you, you know what identity, Christian identity looks like when you see it. But we need something more than that. It just can't be ad hoc or, or off the cuff. And so yesterday we offered a sociological, psychological interpretation of religious identity as a 
as a dialogue partner, right? And we have to test it now. We have to uh, do some empirical research. Uh, today, I want to follow up on that and springboard out of that to talk about narrative, to talk about holiness identity, and to talk about social process. So I'm going to reiterate. I iterated yesterday, so I'm going to reiterate for a few moments just to set some context for us. I am going to preach a little bit today. Uh, yes, I see myself as an intellectual and as an academic, but I you know that, that preacher in me, that charisma that Christ gave me to proclaim the good news, spills out every once in a while. And as much as I try to subdue it, uh, it just doesn't work all the time. So I'm hoping that little burst of preaching doesn't uh, throw you too much today. Uh, although, although I'd like to follow up on those songs. So in brief, next slide please. So in brief, uh, what we're going to talk about then is the social possibility. I've argued for that of holiness identity that might emerge from specific locations, social locations, in which Particular religious narratives, which have to include episodes of holiness, are established by embodied practices in community. Now, that's a mouthful, and there's a lot there. That could constitute a book. Oh, that's a wonderful idea. Maybe changing identity might be a good book to write on this, right? You know? Uh, so, but think about the pieces here. What are the parts of the puzzle? So, the possibility of holiness identity. Wednesday, I tried to argue in favor of that. We're going to talk about identity as a narrative construction. As soon as you came in this chapel, you were already telling a story. And it spilled over in your actions and your behavior, the way you dress, the way you sit in the pew like that, you know. Everything is about your narrative spilling out uh, and uh, shaping and forming who you are. You're all, we are always projecting this from the day we were born and the doctor spanked our little behind and we started that primordial cry, you know. We were projecting ourselves out and we've been shaping and forming that in some way. So narratives. How does narrative function in our self-identity and religious identity and what are the episodes of holiness that we ought to be concerned about and how are, how are these narratives established by social process. And uh, we'll talk about that, okay? We'll get there. So, next slide, please. So, let me just uh, review a little bit. We've suggested that our theory of religious identity resonates very nicely with self-identity. That so what's happening in social psychology right now offers us wonderful resources. If, in fact, self-identity is a narrative construction, hey, Religion is narrative, right? You know? Wow. And there's this wonderful synergism between, at least as I see it, between what's happening in social psychology and what's happening in contemporary, contemporary theology. And basically, one of the modes of theologizing that I engage in is narrative theology, exploring the dimensions, pushing it to the limits, and testing that. We said that self-identity then is a narrative construction. That socially available narratives, 
whether they be cultural or in our society or within this institution right here, there are socially available religious stories that you can incorporate, right, into your life. That's the point. That's why we exist as an institution, right? That we are a Christian academic institution forming and shaping Christian intellectuals to engage the gospel, engage the world in shaping and forming uh, Christian identity and improving, shaping, bringing God's grace, announcing God's grace to the world. So socially available, but they're established by embodied practices in particular locations. So we've, that's kind of general. Religious identity is, in fact, an aspect of self-identity. And then there's a salience hierarchy. Next little piece there, right? So what is salience? Well, salience is kind of prominence, right? So if you were to talk to me for very long, and I were to tell you about myself, certain features of my identity would bubble to the surface very fast, you know? And those kinds of things that we tell about ourselves that bubble to the surface really fast, we consider to be high salient. I have a buddy of mine who loves learning about the Civil War. I mean, his, his knowledge of history, Dr. McCoy, is very narrow, right, you know? I mean, that's all he knows about history, but he knows everything about the Civil War. I mean, he is immersed in it. He can recite all the battles, what happened, the armies, you know, where the troops moved and everything. And you don't have to be around him for very long before that aspect of his identity emerges really, really fast. We call that high salient, right? So there are some people who have features of their self-identity are religious identities, but they're not high salient. It's a part of them. It's an important part of them, but it's not what bubbles out to the, you know, quickly. It doesn't emerge really fast. So it doesn't really shape a lot of what they do. So it's kind of low salience, okay? But there are other people that you talk to where just in a few moments, they start talking about their faith, their church. They start talking about being Christian, you know. They might invite you to their church. They tell you about the goodness of God, you know. And it bubbles to the surface. We call that or consider that high salient. And the chances are, high probability, that that aspect of their narrative, their self-identity, probably shapes a lot of what they do. So as a preacher, as a pastor, as a theologian here at the school, I'm about high salient religious identities. I believe that I want to promote and to encourage a high salient holiness identity that is intentional and emerges really fast. And it shapes everything about us, right? All that we do. The way that we dress, the way we talk, the way we behave. So, a little bit, <coughs> sorry, <clears throat> about what I'm trying to do. And then a question for you here is, how does then, the question I want to talk about today is, how does the self in community, notice that hyphenated phrase, right? Self in community, take on a holiness identity. I'm kind of protecting that idea of the self here, right? You know, shaping it in some way. Well, that's what I want to talk about for the next few moments. But in order to do that, 
I'd like to offer to you a biblical text, not so much because I'm going to preach from it or we're going to draw much theology from it, so I'm not going to do a lot of biblical interpretation necessarily or a lot of theologizing this morning. That's for other classes and other times. I'm thinking more of that social process or social structure, but let's look at 2 Peter here. Verses, uh, we'll look at verses 1 through 9 altogether, but as we've been talking about self-identity, the ingredients of religious identity, can you discern in your heart, in your mind, the features of religious identity in this text right here? Second Peter is becoming one of my formative texts. And uh, I would love to offer the model in Second Peter of religious identity here as a model for Nazarenes. Right, that we might consider as a people to engage as a community and thinking about forming holiness identities. And so, so I have other agendas going on here, right? But for, for now, let's just consider it an illustrative text. So follow along as I read. So Second Peter chapter 1, I'm suggesting that Second Peter is not the Peter uh, of First Peter, okay? All right. I uh, hope that's not a shock to you. You probably had a class with Dr. Malice. But I'm suggesting that a different, little bit different time, different circumstance, and uh, that this is a different uh, shaping of community here that's going on. All right? A little preliminary stuff. So, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Jesus, Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. Ooh, sounds like narrative to me, right? Professor Williams, sounds like religious story to me. There's a backstory here, right? Now, Peter is writing to these folks who are, who are having some difficulties integrating holiness into their lives, being faithful Christians in the circumstances in which they are living. But he begins by reminding them of their primary story, where are primary stories told and retold? In community, right? Every time we gather together as a people, we continue to keep fresh the formative stories that shape us, the ones that we're living into by faith, and keep them fresh up here. When we do not do that, Peter Berger says, a great sociologist, uh, who talks about plausibility structures, social structures that are in place to reinforce and keep fresh these identity narratives. And when those plausibility structures diminish, when the narratives aren't told, we have more difficulty keeping that identity in our consciousness. Right? So church, ecclesia, Community gatherings like this are those times when we keep those stories fresh to keep our identities strong. We need them and we uh, require them. So he's telling a story here, right? Then he says, grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and, our, uh, and of Jesus our Lord. And he talks about this idea of knowledge. Knowledge, we, we learn, we grow, we understand, we're taught. The catechesis, right? You know, we're trained. We learn from tradition, we learn from scripture. We learn from the community, retelling these stories. 
And as we gain that knowledge, we enter into an understanding of who God is and the kind of life he calls us to live. And notice this verse 3, which I think is one of the most challenging verses for us in our culture. His divine power, God's divine power, Jesus' divine power, has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. The, one of the reasons I like that text is it's very explicit. It says very clearly that we potentially lack nothing. Whatever spiritual, theological, ecclesial resources uh, that we need to become holy people have already been made available to us by God's divine power and promise. And we must then learn, we must then know, we must become acquainted with that then. So not a single one of us who names Jesus as Lord or who is named by Jesus as Lord has any doubt or should have any doubt that whatever we need, whatever resources in order to live an engaging, fervent, and vibrant holy life has already been made available to us through Jesus Christ our Lord. I don't know about you folks. But that makes me want to jump over a pew. I love that, right? That's fantastic. And that should excite us, you know? So I love it when I go to some churches or, you know, gatherings, you know. And I like to, sometimes I play with people a little bit, you know. Maybe I shouldn't do that. And so I'll say, hey, isn't it wonderful? We're forgiven of our sins, yeah. And everybody goes, oh, yeah, wow, wonderful. Ooh, praise God, right, you know? So they cheer for a while, and I go, and we can be holy in this life. Silence. Silence. And they go, yeah, we know. Right, you know? Where's the exuberance, right? We love being forgiven. We do. But do we love being holy? You know? i got to ask that question as a preacher, right? God wants me to ask that question to my community today. That's an interesting question. So, by his own glory and goodness. The word goodness there, just go back one slide real quick. The word goodness, I've underlined glory and goodness. God's glory, his magnificence and wonder, right? His majesty. But the word goodness there in that text is the Greek word erite. It means, it's translated virtue, right? The Greek word is a common word in Greek uh, ethical language and lingo, right? Virtue. Uh, erite, right? So the, God is virtuous or good by nature. By virtue of God's own character, God is good. But what about us? Are we virtuous by nature? Not fill a fountain, right? No way. In fact, maybe just the opposite that has occurred, or uh, as we think theologically about that. So, next slide. So it's through God's goodness and glory that these are made possible. And then God made us some promises that through these things, his glory and goodness, his own virtue, he has made very great promises to us. And God's made a promise that through them, through his own glory and goodness, that you may be able to participate 
in the divine nature that you can become like God. Woo! Wow! That's incredible, folks. Now, if God is virtuous by nature, how do I become virtuous? That's one of the questions I want to ask of this text, right? You know, how is it possible for Phil the Fountain, who looked like that guy in the bike, right? You know, how do I gain a self-identity that looks like God and is characterized by God's own glory and virtue? How do we get there? Well, I want to argue for social process. I want to argue for a particular social location in which that narrative is told and engaging in the practices that bring about or at least facilitate that kind of uh, experience or that kind of reality. God is free. We can't dictate to God. And it's not something that we predict. But as the conditions are set, then it might be possible as God works. So, Because God has given us these promises that we can become like him and having escaped the corruption of the world caused by evil desires. So actually the promise is two parts. We can become like God and we can escape the corruption of the world. Well, how do we become like God? We become like God by escaping the corruption of the world, right? The one leads to the other. We escape the corruption of the world, and as we engage in the practices we're going to talk about in a few moments, we become like God. So, for this very reason, what reason? Because God made you these promises, right? This is motivational. This is our backstory. This is our narrative that motivates and shapes our behavior, right? God made us these promises. We can be like him, and we can escape corruption of the world. Therefore, that should motivate us, right? To do what? I love this. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith. Faith is the beginning part. Forgiveness is wonderful, folks. We're forgiven of the sins that we've committed, right? You know, we're set free from the bondage of sin. But that's not the end. That's only the beginning, Now we must engage in the body life that God has called us to so we can begin to look like him. Faith is the beginning. You and I have a common faith. If you have believed that Jesus Christ is Lord and that your sins have been forgiven by him, then you are pure and clean and you have been uh, uh, set apart for him. And now your grateful response is to submit your body to him, to God, to Jesus Christ, in a way that will allow God's grace to flow and work through you in shaping and forming you in community, right? Not at home alone, right? In community, because that's the only place it happens. Make every effort then, sweat blood, to add to your faith. I know there might be some, you know, some Reformation folk here, right? I mean, Wesley and... Uh, the rest of us are Reformation folk, right? Well, wait just a minute here, right? You know, I'm a good Protestant, right? You know, uh, I'm a good, you know, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a member of the Reformation, right? You know, come on. I'm saved by grace alone. Sola, sola gratia, or faith, sorry. Sola, sola fide, right? By faith alone, right? You know, excuse me, but I think Peter might have something to say to us, right? You know? I think Peter is going to call us to account. 
right? And say, hey, come on, Phil. Think about what it means to become a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. So, what am I going to add to my faith then? Well, here it is. Goodness. Glory and goodness. Remember, God's glory and goodness. Erite. Uh, virtue. He, in this list, what's the first thing we add to faith? Virtue. Except here, if God is virtuous by nature, we are not. We must become virtuous. We must put on virtue. My wife and I are working on a little devotional book called Clothed with God. How provocative. Isn't that wonderful? How do we become clothed with God? God is virtue by nature. We become virtuous by putting on God. Interesting concept, right? A lot of really interesting religious theological stuff going on there. And we're playing that out in this little devotional book, right? You know? So, goodness, virtue. I would argue that the best translation here for Erite is courage. The first thing you put on when you have faith in Jesus is courage. I heard an amen there. Thank you. Yes, right? Because you've got to be courageous to be a Christian in this crazy world, right? A lot of Christians are wringing their hands. Oh, I don't know. Can I be a Christian today? Oh, I don't know. Sweat and blood, right? Am I really a Christian today? We take our spiritual pulse every five minutes, you know? Have courage, right? Believe. Have faith, right? Put on courage first. Then once you are courageous, once you have this courage, and then put on knowledge. How are you going to know what kind of life to live? You got to have understanding, right? So you go to the scriptures, you go to the tradition, you go to the community. Say, help me, help me know what kind of life I'm called to live here, you know? And then knowledge, self-control. Folks, if we can't control ourselves, it's all over. If, there, if we deny the possibility of controlling our bodies and our minds, it's all over. You may as well go home and become a couch potato, right, you know? Because... There's not possible then, right? Peter says, you better believe it's possible. You're called to have self-control in your life. I cannot steal once. But I've got to do that over and over and over again. I cannot lie once. But I've got to do it over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, right? You know, this, these are things that we appropriate, practices that we engage in to gain self-control And then as I gain self-control, I put on perseverance. I keep doing the same things over and over. That then leads us to godliness, becoming like God. Do you you see the, the process here, the social process, the spiritual process? And to godliness, mutual affection. And then to mutual affection, agape, love, right? As the apex of our life together in community, right? Now, here, Peter just lists these. But I'm going to argue with you today, or to you, for you today, to you today, that these are actually values that reflect or, or can lead into spiritual practices, religious practices, communal practices, things that we to, do together over time. Then he says, for if you possess these qualities... In increasing measure, and you're growing in them, 
they will keep you from becoming ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of Jesus Christ. I'm going to conclude that the reason many Christians are, are ineffective in the faith is because they are not engaging in this process that Peter clearly calls us to. What other conclusion can I draw, right? I mean, unless there are some other di- really dysfunctional things going on. But I mean, I think in, in everyday life, right? And then he says, but whoever does not have these. So if you don't have virtue and perseverance and godliness and goodness and self-control, all this, then he says you're blind, right? You're, you're nearsighted and blind. You've forgotten that you were cleansed when you were saved. You forgot that you were freed from sin. You forgot that faith is only the beginning. And that we must engage in this process by which we incorporate, we are clothed with God, we put on the virtue of God, and holiness then is the self-identity that emerges out of this process. And there's more going on in the text, of course, after this verse 9. But those who fail to engage in this religious, spiritual process have forgotten that they have been cleansed from their early sins, and Peter says that they're in grave danger. I'll just leave it at that, right? He, he warns them pretty seriously, uh, warns them about their spiritual, impending spiritual death and possibility of, of, of um, a shipwreck. He goes on to some pretty interesting things, right, you know? Uh, so, next slide then. So, in shaping holiness identity, so I'm, gonna, I'm using this as text as illustrative, but there are three pieces to this that we've been talking about. First is, the holiness narrative. We've got to have a holiness story that emerges out of the matrix, the biblical theological matrix, by which we can guide our lives by. And then I'm going to argue that these religious texts, these stories, are expressed and shaped within a particular social, concrete social place called an ecclesia or church or congregation or whenever we gather together as God people and associated with these uh, this narrative then in this place are called embodied practices, things that we do in the body. So next slide. Uh, would you just go to the uh, slide on the uh, uh, ecclesial context? So just quickly to say that every religious community, wow, every religious community is a hermeneutical community, that we dialogue about this. So ecclesial context. First of all, Peter's not writing to the pure or abstract individual. He's writing to the individual in community, the believer in ecclesia. And then the church is the primary social location where identities are formed. And then ecclesia, churches, whatever you want to say, are organized, structured, empowering, moral communities in which religious activity or action is engaged. Embodied practices. Next, what we do in the body matters to God. When we forget that, we enter in, or we, we're susceptible to what it used to be called in the church Gnosticism or disembodied religion, where it, what only matters is what happens in the mind. Right? I believe in Jesus Christ. Hey, I've got. I, I know all the doctrines of the faith. Right? You know, but our bodies don't reflect that. Our our experiences, our our body life, our sh- our shaping doesn't experience that or doesn't reflect that, and then we are left stranded. So Gnosticism is, is this separation of spirit, spirit or soul from the body. And uh, biblical faith does not express that. Holiness, then, is what we do in the body. So no easy believism. We don't just believe and we're somehow safe from God, right? Practices are moral activities, things we do together over time, and embodied practices are both moral responses. 
embodied practice is both means and ends. The embodied practice I'm going to call you to today is the goal of the Christian faith. It's what it means to be Christian. At the same time, engaging that practice is what facilitates that, 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 that uh, self-identity. That makes sense? So they're both more responses to the gospel and formative at the same time. Uh, John Howard Yoder, next slide, one of my favorite theologians, uh, wrote a book called Body Politics. And he asked this question, what practices then engage, engage us that are moral and formative? In his book called Body Politics, five practices Christian communities experience or express before the eyes of the waiting world. And you might, you might ask, po- po- politics? Wait a minute, politics? We're supposed to be political? All Yoder means by that is public. These are things that we do as a people of God, and anybody who wants to look on us can look on us, right? And by doing this, by being church, by being the people of God, we then evangelize. We share the good news. So we don't go knocking on the door, oh, hey, do you know Jesus Christ is your Savior? We show the world what it means to be God's people. And they are free to look upon us and to ask really hard questions about us, right, you know, and of us. So body, politics implies polity, comes from the Greek word polis, society, order, community, people. So polity is the public expression of communal identity, how it looks and the characteristics of order. And here are the five practices, I'm just going to name them real quick, that Yoder uh, suggests. Right now, we are negotiating this in the Church of Nazarene. What are those practices that are good reflections of being holy and the ones that morally shape us in that way? So the first is binding and loosing. How do we resolve more disputes in the church? We gossip. Yeah. Oh, you know, Bill McCoy, you know, he did to me the other day, you know. Yeah, he's a bum, isn't he, right, you know? So we, 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 we commiserate with each other. That's how we resolve problems in the church. No wonder we're not holy people. Come on. Right, you know? So, we have to learn how to resolve disputes called binding and loosing. Next, the Lord's Supper. We get a little cracker and juice. We get a little cracker and juice. Right, you know? The Lord's Supper is our economic policy, folks. It tells us what to do with our wealth. It guides us and shapes us in sharing our communal resources together. It's more than cracker and juice. Come on. Baptism. It's, it, baptism for us is meism. I got my little, I got my little dress on today. Yeah, I, I, I'm getting baptized today. You want to come see me, right? You know? No. You can be clothed in rags. I don't care. It's our political po- policy. When you are baptized, you are saying that you will follow no other Lord than Jesus Christ. Amen. I needed that. Amen. Right? <laughs> come on. No other lords. Not America. Not sports. I don't get many amens on that one. You know? No, no other lords. Come on. That's what our baptism means. I don't care what you wear to baptism. You know? <laughs> Maybe you should be modest. <laughs> the rule of Paul. How do we worship God correctly? How do we organize our worship services? The rule of Paul, right? And finally, the fullness of Christ. Every single one of you here today, if you are a faithful believer and follower of Jesus Christ, you have charisma. 
You have the endowment of the Spirit of God that I need to become a better Christian. And you have a moral obligation to express that in community so that I can grow spiritually. Because, folks, what I'm talking to you about today, I've got some self-interest here. It's about my salvation. And I need you to care about my salvation. To share your spiritual charisma with the body of Christ so I can be edified and grow and start looking more like Jesus Christ every day. I need an amen. Amen. I'll leave you with this prayer. Oh, next slide. Holiness. It's supposed to be difficult, folks. I mean, I stopped moaning and groaning, right, you know? We're becoming like God. It's supposed to be tough. But we are God's people on earth. Let's stand together, please. Our benediction. The writer of Ephesians writes this. And I'm going to get on my knees, folks. Because every time I read this, I depict the writer on his knees. And he says this, as a prisoner for the Lord. I urge you, I beg of you, to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. And especially with me, please, right, you know? Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is, after all, one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were all called. One Lord, one faith. One baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And if that's not your identity, it should be. Have a great day.